song of songs, let's talk about things. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's this fantastically awkward spot <clears throat> in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus continues to like completely turn everybody like upside down in his explanation of just like how his kingdom works. He, he starts off, he, he, he does these like, he starts off with announcements and he tells the poor in spirit and, and the mourners and the meek and the hungry, these people that could possibly be at the end of their rope, spiritually, physically, financially, whatever, that they actually will, on the contrary, be these, be filled with the Holy Spirit and taste the mercy and the comfort that God's kingdom brings. Then he further tells his listeners that they are uh, to be salt and light to the world that is desperate for heavenly flavor and illumination. If they got that, if that got their attention, then he really starts to go down, go to town on their wor- worldview. Apparently, Jesus says, not one bit of the law will be lost. In fact, unless these listeners, these listeners exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the tall order seemed further daunting with the next two things that Jesus says. You've heard it said to the, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, <laughs> that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And then Jesus gives them a real kicker. He says, you've heard it said, to those of old, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, you don't know how bad you got it. You don't know how bad a shape you're in. And those people over there, those people that are at the end of their rope, God's going to bless them in ways they never thought possible. The times they are changing. The kingdom of heaven is crashing into earth and it will have real consequences for the people that claim to be God's people. You know, we've had some, some really hot weather recently. It's the kind of weather that just makes your brain move slowly. Especially in the morning as you attempt to kind of like piece together your day's responsibilities. There was one day, a few weeks ago, stuck out for me in an especially vivid way. I had been praying about this and about what I was going to say to you all in this topic of sexual adoration. I get gas almost every morning at the 7-Eleven up on Owens Mills Boulevard. On this particular morning, I was met... Uh, this, uh, on this particular morning, I was met as I pulled into the lot uh, with caution tape and a lot of people that were gathered around pump number one. Apparently, there had been a spill. Uh, now, spills are simple, to, uh, simple enough to clean up, I suppose, um, but it does take a few people to get the job done. A few people who would have been otherwise occupied, uh, had otherwise occupied their time as cashiers inside the store. So after I, I parked my truck on the other side of the lot and walked inside, I saw that because of the spill, the line 
to the checkout had like wrapped around the entirety of the inside of the store. There was over a dozen people or more, mainly blue-collar guys, standing in this long line holding their coffee and their water and their snacks and they're trying to pay for the gas. No doubt these men were doing the math in their heads, right? Ten more minutes in this line, and that means ten more minutes in the grueling hot sun later on this afternoon. But we needed our gas, and we needed our water. So into the line we went, all of us anxiously awaiting our turn to pay for our items and start the day. Then, in an instant, a complete situation-altering instant, everything changed. This was a rather focused group of people, by the way. I mean, these were people that were ready to get the job done in the morning. They were about to start their day. But then something happened to this long line of men. A young woman walked into the store. And suddenly, the dozen or so men who had been so focused on the day's responsibilities had a total change of demeanor. As the young woman walked throughout the store, men, for some reason, began to fidget. And, and for some reason became overwhelmingly interested in the looks at the other men's faces. Some became quite convinced that they had misplaced their own wallet and began looking for it in the Doritos. <laughs> Others felt the sudden urge to turn completely around and make sure that that broom closet on the other side of the store was in fact still locked. As the men who by now had not quite minded so much that they had been detained in the store for so long, finally made it to the checkout counter, they seemed at that time unable to exit the 7-Eleven. One man even told the tale of being so discombobulated that he missed the door handle knob altogether and smashed his face onto the glass upon attempted departure. It appeared to me in that moment that I had just had a very odd answer to prayer. I had me a sermon illustration. You see, for some time now, I've been considering this phrase. Jason used it the past two weeks. The confines or the bounds of marriage. You know, first class, a logical progression to the two events we've looked at so far this morning would have been looked something like this. Jesus has reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount of this radically corrupt state that each and every one of us is in. He says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away and one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Whoever breaks one of these, uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You think you've walked the line? Because you've only hated men from afar and only regards in regards to the opposite sex read the menu rather than ordering. You haven't walked the line. You're so far from the line, you can't even see it from where you're standing. So rather than burn from passion, as St. Paul eloquently puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, we are to marry so that we may express the inevitable sexual desire in a way pleasing to God with proper boundaries for our wanton lusts. See, it's that last part that I don't really care for. The thing that gets me, the thing, the thing that I don't 
think is right is that I don't think Christians are in the market for more chains, boundaries, or confines. I get that sexual lust outside of marriage is counter to God's best plan for his people. I'm just not in the market to trade in my old chains for new ones. You see, I have some experience with bondage. I know the slavery of my own sin. I'm fully aware that it doesn't take pornography or strip clubs or nightclubs to get a man to move his eye in the direction of another woman. The chains are our own prison. The chains are my own prison. And that fact that we can't even walk into the 7-Eleven in the midst of what otherwise would have been a focused refueling without completely losing track of reality at the sight of a beautiful woman makes me feel the tightening of those confines that would keep me from my creator if not for the blood of my blessed Savior. Friends, I don't know if I need more talk of chains and bondage. It might be helpful. And there's other parts of the scriptures where it does refer to that, where our relationship with Christ does refer to that. But I need more talk of freedom. We Christians are quick to jump on a person that describes our religion as merely a collection of rules and rituals. No, no, we say. that This Christianity business isn't about the bonds of religion. It's about freedom in Christ. Listen to Peterson's translation of Paul's words in Galatians. Isn't it clear, friends, that you, like Isaac, are children of promise? In the days of Hagar and Sarah, the child who came from faithless connivance, Ishmael, harassed the child who came, empowered by the Spirit, from the faithful promise, Isaac. Isn't it clear that the harassment you are now experiencing from the Jerusalem heretics follows that old pattern? There is a scripture that tells us what to do. Expel the slave mother with her son, for the slave son will not inherit with the free son. Isn't that conclusive? We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put the harness of slavery on you. So, when we come to a text like the song Songs, with its beautifully flowing language of sexual adoration. I personally don't find the confines of marriage language to be all that helpful. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that we should have free reign to objectify the opposite sex. I am saying that I believe that Jesus wants us in sex, like everything else, to express the freedom found in his name. The freedom we have in Christ speaks of the identity that we have as God's people, and we should not run from that. So with that in mind, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none of them is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are fair, my love, 
and there is no spot in you. It's the woman's turn in chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy, as black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with pearl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon. Excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yet he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The first thing that sticks out for me when I read the Song of Songs is this freedom of delight that these lovers take in their own, in each other's bodies. This language of the song has by chapter four become increasingly erotic as the lovers take the time to slowly describe each other's forms. Nothing seems to be missed as they dwell in their eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth, neck, hands, legs, breasts, and thighs. It is as if the mere pleasure of their lover brings peace and wellness to their souls. The commentators on the text are quick to point out their voices are in harmony and their desire is mutual. Check out just the first verse of chapter 4. He's saying, look at you. You're beautiful, my friend. See, he isn't just admiring her from afar. He, He isn't just admiring her as one who is removed from her. Rather, he is inviting her to be a part of it. He is inviting her to be a part of the adoration that he is giving to her. I remember that scene in Titanic. You know, you think you're going to like use a Star Wars clip, and then all of a sudden you're typing this out, and you're like, no, a Titanic clip is the best example. Anyway, there's a scene in Titanic where Leo paints this nude portrait of Kate Winslet. Rose walks into the room and tells Jack that the last thing she needs is another picture of her looking like a porcelain doll. She then disrobes and lays on the love seat. She says, my heart was pounding the whole time. It was the most erotic moment of my life. You see there, there was a connection there that she hadn't ever felt before. She didn't need any more disconnected images of herself looking fake and porcelain. She wanted the mysterious erotic connection that exists when one takes the time to worship their lover's body. When the woman's hair is described as like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead, it may seem like a lost simile, but consider what the commentator says that Mount Gilead is the highest plateau east of Galilee and Samaria. Apparently it's noted for its high and rugged cliffs which climb over 3,000 feet from the floor of the Jordan Valley. They present a beautiful but mysterious aspect in the shimmering heat of the afternoon. But my favorite line is in verse 7 of chapter 4. 
Getting to running verse from verse 6. A running start from verse 6. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. What do your other translations say? There is no, there is no flaw in you. Anything else? I know Peterson's translation says that, that she is absolutely flawless. There is no spot in you. There is no blemish in you. Now these words are in the middle of a verse, and I'm not trying to tell tales. But it just struck me how exaggerated this language is. And it reminded me of countless examples in American pop culture. She was a fast machine. She kept her motor clean. She was the best damn woman that I've ever seen. She had the sightless eyes telling me no lies, knocking me out with those American thighs. Or from a woman's perspective, what a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. My man is smooth like Barry and his voice got bass. A body like Arnold with a Denzel face. He's smart like a doctor with a real good rep. And when he come home, he relax with pep. He's always got a gift for me every time I see him. A lot of snot nose, ex flames couldn't be him. He dresses like a dapper don, but even in jeans, he's a godsend original, the man of my dreams. Do you by any chance think that the people being described here, whether they be in the biblical text, the ACDC, or salt and pepper, actually live up to the descriptions that their lovers have given them? No. Not a chance. I mean, I'm sure they're lovely people. <laughs> Brian Johnson's a good-looking man. But I guess, my guess is that there is more going on here when the beloved describes his lover as absolutely flawless. It strikes me as rather anticipatory. You know, it starts when you're young, when you're very young. It starts when, when maybe in the fourth or fifth grade, and you sit in homeroom, and you're starting to worry about your schedule. You know, maybe in middle school when you first start getting that schedule, and you're kind of like, worried about that focus of your day, where am I going and all this, and you start doing your homework, and then you turn to your left. I say you turn to your left because that's where the girl was when I'm thinking about this in my head. And there she is with her eyes and her smile. And at that moment, (laughs) you stumble your way to just to say hi. And in that moment, she's absolutely flawless. She's my Patty Mayonnaise. Anybody get that reference? Doug fans? She's that girl, you know, that, that boy. And when you were growing up, that's your, that first crush and everything else around it doesn't really matter because you're focused. You're focused on something about this. Something about this feels exciting. And this might even be before, you know, puberty has introduced the sexual nature of it there there's that there's that pure almost just admiration adoration of this individual and you realize that maybe they don't have cooties all i know is that she is perfect so 
Ann and I went to a conference a couple of uh, months ago in D.C. to explore children's ministry and to think about, um, you know, how to best serve our kids as we move forward. It was a fantastic week. But every morning, they started with this little song. They, they, they revolved the entire week around Luke 24, which is uh, about the, the two on the road to Emmaus that have this encounter with the risen Lord, although they don't realize it at the time. So every morning, you know, they get us up for worship, and then there's this guy, and he's kind of a, you know, folk singer. And he walks up and he goes, well, good morning. We're walking, 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 walking on the Emmaus Road. We're talking, 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 sharing each other's load. Come and someone came and talked to us. Now, who do you suppose is walking, talking, walking, talking on the Emmaus Road? After a while, you start thinking of ways to chew off your own ears. And then, like, later on, like, throughout the day, you know, like, we had some breaks and stuff. And I, you know, being a history guy, I wanted to go check out, like, the monuments. So I'm, like, walking down the road. Walking, walking, talking, walking, talking on the road. We're walking, walking. You know, and you're, like, you're seeing a police officer. Walking, walking, walking. You get this kick in your step. So when, usually when I can't get things out of my head, I try to think if there's some way I can use it. We're walking talking on the Emmaus Road. These, these two had this encounter with the risen Lord, and they didn't quite realize it at the time. See, there was, there was an element of it that was very there in the moment, and there was an element of it because apparently they didn't recognize him, so apparently there was a physical change there, right? There was, a, there was an element of it that was here, and there was an element of it that was not yet. See, this, this is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect from a resurrection community. This anticipatory line of, my lover is absolutely flawless. I delight in her. I delight in him. And I will take the time to adore her body. Because it is anticipatory of the new creation. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. So in a sense, there is the here, there is this relationship that we get to have now, today. And there's also this anticipation of what God's doing in the new creation. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that it would be a mistake to simply wave the meaning of the Song of Songs off as allegory. I'm convinced that it's about sex. However, my suspicion is that sex is about a whole lot more than just sex. Let's pray. Father, you reminded us this morning that if that everything matters, if anything matters at all, The things that we do here and now matter for eternity. The new life that we taste here today with each other, with our lovers, with our spouses. That new life is anticipatory of the resurrection. 
It is anticipatory of the new creation that we trust. And we know that we hold at the centerpiece of our identity as human beings, we hold that Jesus Christ has set us free. Help us remember that we should never run from that. Jesus is our center. And with that, he gives us the freedom to run from bondage, to run from confines, to run from slavery into his arms. And when we do that, we taste resurrection. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.